I am not. And we're going to read the Bible now. We're going to read Matthew 20, 29 to 34. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Well, let me have my welcome to that at Luke's again. It's great to see you here in a slightly different format this week. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Lynn. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide. I've been with you over the last four weeks, but obviously this week things are a bit different. We are not in the Bedea Chapel, obviously. Uh, this is one of the rooms at Trinity Church Adelaide, uh, where the team there very kindly set up an impromptu recording studio. Um, obviously, uh, things, as Luke has already alluded to, things are a little bit different this week. Um, and yet, in a sense, nothing has really changed uh, in the intervening seven days. Uh, Jesus is still in control. He will still be exalted and glorified forever, and God's plan for the world hasn't really changed. And so it's for that reason that today we're just going to do what we did last week. We're going to continue on in our next passage in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We're up to chapter 20 and the last part of it today. Uh, I'm still going to pause at a couple of points to give you a chance for discussion, uh, which might look a bit different depending on whether you're at home alone or there are others in your house. But if nothing else, it'll be a, a moment for private reflection because, as I've said each week, we're keen for the Word of God not just to go in one ear and out the other. Uh, And likewise, the notes for this week's talk, Luke is hopefully putting up online at the moment as we speak so that you can follow along more easily. Obviously, we can't have Q&A this week, but we'll see what we can do in the weeks ahead. Okay, well, with all that in mind, let me start by praying and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that uh, in it there is life and that it is unchanging and that it always does what you, uh, what you want for it. So we pray, let it not return to you empty this day, but help us as we seek to keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, uh, although we're up to the next section in Matthew's account, uh, the title for this week was deliberately chosen. The title for this week's talk is, Does Jesus Care What Happens to Me? Does Jesus Care What Happens to Me? Uh, And even if he does, well, why doesn't he do something about it? That's not just in our personal experience, but obviously as we reflect on the global suffering that's been caused by this pandemic. Uh, Two things I want to do today. Firstly, just as you'll see on your notes, observe the encounter. And then secondly, just think about how we might apply it to today. Well, first then, observing the encounter. Uh, It was only a short reading that we heard, uh, but there's a lot packed into it. So all I'm going to do today is just walk through it briefly, line by line, like we normally do. So pick it up with me, Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. Matthew 20, verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Uh, Remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We saw this last week. When he gets to Jerusalem, he says that he will be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But on the third day, rise again. Despite that rather dire warning, he's attracted a large crowd that's following him. What happens? Well, verse 30, verse 30, two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and uh, he passes two blind men just sitting by the roadside. 
It's actually a pretty tragic picture when you think about it. Uh, These two men were almost certainly destitute. They were probably begging. There is no social security at the time. And because of that, they're essentially anonymous. See, apart from them being blind, we know nothing at all about them. We don't even know their names. It's as if these are two men who are invisible to society, they're utterly helpless, and they're entirely dependent on the charity of others, even to survive. The only thing that they can do is listen and shout. And they're pretty good at shouting, actually. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us, they cry. Uh, Two things about their plea, their request of Jesus. Firstly, uh, there is some significance in the titles that they're using. Lord, Lord just means someone of authority, someone powerful. Son of David, Son of David probably is an acknowledgement that Jesus stands in the line of the great kings of Israel. For us as the readers, right back in the opening verse of the entire book, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The second thing to note about their cry is that it's straight to the point. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. They're asking Jesus to have mercy because, well, quite frankly, no one else has. No one else has shown them any pity or compassion this day. The proof, in fact, is that the large crowd is passing by and ignoring them completely. Actually, that's not quite true. Verse 31. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Actually, it turns out the crowd doesn't just ignore them. The crowd rebukes them, tells them to shut up. Now you recall that a couple of weeks ago we saw that that word rebuke is the word that was used to describe what the disciples did when people brought little children to Jesus for him to bless them. The disciples rebuked people who were trying to bring the little ones to Jesus for blessing. Matthew 19 verse 13. And maybe that's why the two blind men are undeterred by the crowd's rebuke. But we're told they shout all the louder. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Because, well, their only hope is that Jesus hears them and that Jesus heeds their cry. In fact, their plea is word for word identical to before. Because this is their last chance. After all, they can hardly chase after Jesus once he's left Jericho, can they? Well, what happens? Verse 32, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Incredibly, at this point, Jesus stops. I take it that's because Jesus cares. Unlike the crowds who had no interest in these unimportant, useless beggars. And so comes Jesus' question. What do you want me to do for you? And that's the key to this whole episode. So, how do they respond? Well, verse 33, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. We want our sight. Well, one level, you kind of feel saying, well, duh, what else would they be asking for? After all, back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, the, the passage should be there, the note should be there on, um, the reference should be there on your notes, sorry. 
Matthew 9, verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Earlier in Matthew's account, we've seen two other blind men make the same request of Jesus, using almost exactly the same words, and when they did, Jesus gave them their sight. So that stands to reason that we assume that these two blind men will just ask for the same thing. Let me ask you, if Jesus were walking past today, if Jesus were to stop outside your house, if Jesus were to pop into your chat room, what would you ask him for? It's a question worth mulling over, I think. We're going to come back to it at the very end. But the thing to notice here is that these two blind men, they asked for their sight, but they could have asked for so much more. I say that because even before Jesus met the previous two blind men in chapter 9, verse 27, back in chapter 9, verse 2, he met a paralyzed man. Again, the reference is there. You'll see it printed on your notes. Matthew 9, verse 2. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. It's an extraordinary episode. Paralyzed man is brought before Jesus. Everyone's expecting that Jesus will do something miraculous because that's kind of what Jesus does. But instead of healing him, Jesus says, Your sons are forgiven. Sorry, your sons. Your sins are forgiven. Of course, to demonstrate that he has power to forgive sins, not just to say he can, or Jesus will go on to heal the paralytic in chapter 9. And so ask the question then, why do these two blind men in chapter 10 only ask to be healed and not forgiven their sins as well? Well, without in any way being judgmental, I presume they didn't ask for their sins to be forgiven because they didn't think that that was their most urgent need. Surely, being able to see and have some quality of life was what really mattered. And it's a question that ought to nag away at us readers, at us listeners, because the paralysed man got both, both forgiveness and healing. Well, what happens then? We come to the conclusion, verse 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. And without a moment's hesitation, it seems, Jesus gives them exactly what they want. We're told he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight. The healing that Jesus brings in is instant and effortless and it is total. Wouldn't you like that kind of power at your fingertips? given the week that we have just had. Once again, two points. Firstly, Matthew says Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on them. You see that in the fact that he touched their eyes. He touched their eyes. Now, it's true, Jesus didn't need to keep social distance protocols at this point uh, because blindness wasn't particularly contagious. It wasn't contagious at all, actually. But we also know that Jesus didn't need to touch them to heal them. He had that much power, as we have seen countless times. 
I think it's a reminder of the mercy that Jesus displays in his gift of physical touch and affection. Especially to a destitute, homeless, likely filthy blind beggar whom others went out of their way to avoid. Jesus doesn't just talk with compassion, he acts with great love. And it makes us wonder, what kind of Lord, son of David, is like this? Surely we want to know. Jesus had compassion on The second and final thing to notice was that at the very end, those last couple of words, immediately they received their sight and followed him. These two blind men followed Jesus as he leaves Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Now why? Why do they keep following him? I mean, haven't they got what they asked for? They wanted their sight. Jesus has given it to them. Were they so overjoyed that this was the obvious thing to do? That is, to just keep hanging out with this guy who has done so much for them. On the other hand, is it just a reminder of how utterly impoverished they were? They had nothing they couldn't leave behind at a moment's notice. Or maybe, maybe were they still looking for more? Well, the story's over. Next week, we'll come back and we'll see what happens when Jesus makes it to Jerusalem. But before we do, just a couple of suggestions for application. And this is point two here on your, uh, on your outlines. Firstly, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Obviously, this is a reference to verse 32 and the request uh, that um, the blind men will eventually bring of Jesus. But I want to ask today, what do you want Jesus to do for you? How would you answer that question this week? What's the most urgent thing that you would request? Dear God, spare me. Dear God, spare my family. Dear God, protect others. Dear God, end the pandemic with minimal loss of life and without long-term economic suffering. Can I say those are good and right things to ask Jesus for? That's why we pray. But I wonder if you can see that from this short episode that Jesus has so much more to offer than even that. After all, he's headed for Jerusalem. Jerusalem where, as we saw last week, when he gets there, he will give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he's come in the first place. Matthew is saying, don't settle for healing. If nothing else, it's only a temporary fix. And to point out the obvious, those two blind men who followed Jesus like everyone else who did, eventually they died. And yet, Jesus has so much more to offer. Think not of those two blind men, rather remember that paralysed man who was healed, but also forgiven. If you're joining us today because you're not a believer, then I want to say, well, first of all, well done on finding us. Uh, We're really thrilled that you've given some time to join in 
Uh, this next phase of our community, uh, we're shifting online for a season until we can meet again. It's great that you're here and we're just so thrilled that you spent this time with us. I want to say to you, this is why this church is still trying to meet. Well, quite frankly, it'd be easier just to shut up shop. It's because we have good news. We have good news. Jesus has so much more to offer. And quite frankly, there's not much good news around at the moment. So if you hear someone who's trying to work out who this Jesus is, what he's done, what he claims about who he is, can I please encourage you, as we wrap up, uh, to make sure you connect afterwards. If you're a believer, if you're a member of this church, then can I say to you, never doubt this fact. Jesus has so much more to offer. See, even if he doesn't answer your immediate prayer the way you'd like him to, remember, he has come to address our biggest need. And that means that by definition, everything else that he does is only secondary. If he doesn't answer all of those requests, you can be sure he's got a good reason for not giving you what you want. Because he is compassionate. And so the second and final thing I'd like to say in terms of application, there on your handout, Jesus has compassion. Uh, This last week has been really hard. It's been really hard for everyone in our community, in our country, in our world. There has been rightly an enormous outpouring of fear and anxiety and above all grief. Grief at death, although thankfully not as much here as in other places. Grief at what we have lost or will lose in the weeks and months ahead. As you know, I work with university students. Uh, All classes have been moved online uh, as of basically next week in all of our campuses here in South Australia. I was talking to one of our students, one of the presidents of one of our groups. She was saying to me how sad she was because she didn't sign up for online study. Maybe it's grief at humanity. I find it somewhat ironic that so soon after the mateship and solidarity we saw in the bushfire crisis, this week we've watched panic buying expose the ugly truth about who we are. See, most of us do not trust others to love us, even as we try to love our neighbour as ourselves. In the midst of all the suffering in our world and the grief that we rightly feel because of it, Matthew 20 reminds us of the one conviction that is constant and unchanging. It reminds us of the one thing that you need to know in this week ahead, and in the week after that, and in the months that lie before us. The one certainty that will carry us through. Jesus has compassion. This brief episode we've seen today, it's about the extent of his power, but it's about much more than that. It's about how he uses his power. Because he does so with a tenderness and a kindness and a love that I think is possibly even more remarkable.
And that means that when the timing and the nature of his response is not to our preference, we can be certain that Jesus still does care. It occurred to me this week as I was preparing for this talk that um, when Matthew says Jesus had compassion in chapter 20, it's a reminder of the first time he used that phrase. It's actually back in chapter 9. And again, you should see it on your notes. Let me just read out the last four verses of chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I love the description of the way in which the crowds were described in verse 36. Like sheep without a shepherd. It's a powerfully evocative image. It is chaotic and noisy. There is pushing and shoving, much like in a supermarket. But whatever the image is meant to do, it's a picture of brokenness, of suffering. And yet, Jesus' response to our pain is always the same. He always cares. He always has compassion. Yes, at times he chooses to heal, even in ways that we cannot anticipate. But much more importantly, he proclaims the good news of the coming kingdom of God. Jesus has compassion and Jesus has capability. Jesus has compassion, he cares. Jesus has capability, he can intervene. And where I want to conclude then is by asking how might we introduce unbelievers to him so they glimpse the hope and the confidence that we have in him. Because I reckon that's the most important news alert that people need to hear. Do you know that for 2,000 years, this is how Christians have responded to the suffering of our world? They've not responded with apathy or by retreating, but always with compassion and proclamation. They've responded not with self-protection or self-preservation, rather with a self-sacrificial, costly love for those around us, for both their body and their soul. Given your reference there to a book uh, by Rodney Stark. Uh, the book is called The Rise of Christianity, A Sociologist Reconsiders History. Now let me say, the book is brilliant but absurdly long, so I'm going to give you the short version today, uh, even though I'm sure you've got plenty of spare time on your hands at the moment. Uh, before I do, let me just explain, Rodney Stark is not a Christian, agnostic at best. But what he did was that he did work trying to explain how is it that Christianity could spread from the marginal fringe of the Roman Empire to becoming the dominant mainstream religion of the entire world. His answer? Well, his answer was because of the plagues. The plagues that would periodically decimate the empire. These were placed even worse than what we're experiencing now. Highly contagious, no cure, close to 100% mortality rates. And what that meant was that if you got it, you died. At the time, particularly in the early first century, 
the wealthy pagans knew that the Christians would stay to care for the dying. In Rome in particular, it got to a point where when the plagues would hit, the wealthy pagans would drop their sick relatives off at the houses of their neighbours who were Christian before they themselves would flee to save their own skins. Would it surprise you to hear that when they eventually returned, they often came to Christ? How might we introduce the unbelievers around us to Christ so they glimpse the hope and the confidence that we have in him? Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that we ought blithely sacrifice ourselves. I'm not suggesting that because actually that kind of that kind of bravado sadly often leads to others being afflicted of a kind of collateral damage that clearly is not loving our neighbour. And again, I'm not suggesting that we ought to ignore governmental advice. Can I say in this matter, the job of the government is hard enough. Let's not make it any harder for them. Please follow their directions, even if you disagree with them. Because 1 Peter 2 reminds us that ultimately the government is appointed by God. It's not answerable to the electorate. And please don't mishear me, I am not suggesting that we ignore the dangers of COVID-19. That we pretend that it's not actually real, that no harm would come to us. I got, I'm going to say this, I got so angry this week when I read reports of the Orthodox Church saying that you couldn't catch coronavirus from sharing the common cup of communion because the bread and wine had become the incorruptible body and blood of Christ. What I am suggesting is that we Christians not give in to fear. Not in the way in which those around us are. We don't give in to fear because we have a better story to tell. It's a realistic story, and it's an honest story, but it's a better story. It's a story about sin, and about human nature, and about our greatest need. But above all, it's a story about Christ's care and compassion. It's a better story to tell. Because after the scientists and virologists have developed a vaccine, and they will, after life returns to normal... Actually, some things won't have changed. Our world will still be broken and decaying. Suffering still won't be eradicated. And no amount of innovation or preservation or preparation will prevent the next catastrophic event. And Christ can. And thank God, He cares. The Apostle Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. A hope we have in Jesus. A hope that means we can conduct ourselves differently in this week ahead, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. A hope that we have something to offer those around us. That Jesus cares. Okay, well, as I've done the last couple of weeks, I'm going to pause at this point and give you just um, a couple of minutes Uh, to be able to, either with people around you if you're watching this with others, or perhaps just on your own for quiet reflection, have a look at the question there that's on your notes. This week, how
how might you talk to the unbelievers in your life about Jesus' compassion? What reactions might you get? And how might you respond? Okay, again, I'll pause for a couple of minutes, and I'll come back and I'll wrap up up first in prayer. Okay, well, thanks, everyone. Um, Do come back to either Luke or myself if you have any questions or any comments. Um, I'll look forward to seeing you all again next week for the last in our series. Let me finish our time here by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this glimpse and a reminder of what Jesus is like, that he is kind and compassionate and powerful, and that he notices uh, when we are suffering and in grief, and he reaches down to us. Uh, we pray that um, that conviction and certainty might strengthen us in this week ahead, and especially we pray in ways that we can't even begin to anticipate just yet. Please give us opportunities to share with those around us the reason for this hope which we have.